0: Welcome to the law with DK Williams, giving the courts credit when they get it right, calling them out when they get it wrong. Welcome back to the law. I'm DK Williams, and this is episode 54, Nixon versus the United States. Now, Nixon versus the United States is the U.S. Supreme Court case on impeachment and removal from office. But it's not about Richard Nixon, because Richard Nixon resigned in 1974 as president to avoid impeachment and subsequent removal by the U.S. Senate. The Nixon in this case was a federal judge who had this case heard in 1993, or it was decided in 1993. His name is Walter L. Nixon Jr. We'll get into why he was impeached and removed from office, but it's just kind of coincidental that the major case... On impeachment and removal from office involves a guy named Nixon, but it's not Richard Nixon. He wasn't impeached at all because he he quit before that. Uh, Richard was basically told by Senate leaders, Senate Republican leaders, that, hey, man, jigs up, bro. If you don't resign, this is going to be embarrassing. And yes, we Are going to vote to get you out of here because what you've done is just untenable. And Barry Goldwater was one of those Republicans, Republican senators, that went to talk to Richard Nixon and said, Yo, dude, jigs up, man. Get out of here if you want to save some face. Otherwise, you're going to be kicked out. But that's not who this case is about. And remember, and most of you probably know this, the House impeaches or brings charges. They allege bad conduct, like an indictment in a criminal case, although. Impeachment and removal is not criminal at all. It's just what it is. It's its own thing. It's impeachment and removal. If the House impeaches, brings charges, says we want to get rid of this guy, that only has to be by uh, just over 50%. No supermajority. But then the Senate must try the person. And Trump's in the news, right? Dem- Democrats in the House are talking about impeaching him and they must lay out why they want him impeached or think he should be removed from office. But then the Senate has a trial. The Constitution says the Senate will try whoever the person is on the impeachment, on the charges brought by the House. Now, to be removed, to be convicted, but it's not criminal, so that kind of makes it fuzzy, can be confusing, but you still say convicted even though it's not a criminal case. If Trump's convicted of an impeachment, he's not going to jail. They can just kick him out of office. But that's the language that we use. But in order for the Senate to kick him out or anybody subject to impeachment and removal, any federal officer. The Senate has to vote to, to convict on the impeachment by two-thirds, so that's a super majority. It's not easy to do, and we'll talk about that. As always, The Law with D.K. Williams is brought to you in collaboration with speakeasyideas.com. You can subscribe to The Law and other Speakeasy Ideas podcasts through your favorite podcast app and go right to speakeasyideas.com. Do the little slash, type in The Law, and they will all be up there. Follow this podcast on social media, Twitter at The Law, DKW, and on Facebook.com slash The Law with DK Williams. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, if you want to, if you'd like to, please like it, thumbs up, whatever you do these days. Leave a review on the Facebook page. That helps get the, uh, the podcasts broadcast to more places. And I am available for speaking engagements, consulting, and teaching. One thing I uh, would like to do is teach homeschool students about the Constitution. So if you're interested in that or any of that, you can contact Bethany at speakeasyideas.com for details on that. One more thing before we jump into this week's case. I want to comment briefly on another case that's been in the news this week. It's actually three cases, but they're all about the rights of the LGBTQ community in the private workplace. Now, I discussed these cases in some detail back in episode 31, but the headlines, the current headlines this week, and it's the week of October, today's Wednesday. I'm recording this on October 9th, 2019. The headlines this week, a lot of them are misleading. Not all of them, some of them get it right, but a lot of them are misleading. And it has been in the news this week because these cases were argued this week at the current term of the Supreme Court, which just opened recently. Some headlines incorrectly pose the question something like, Supreme Court to decide if LGBTQ workers should have rights or something like that. But that's not what the Supreme Court is doing at all. The Supreme Court is not making a policy decision. The Supreme Court isn't saying, is it a good idea for the LGBTQ community to be protected from being fired because they're in the LGBT community? They're not deciding that. That's not what the Supreme Court does. What the Supreme Court is doing in this case is interpreting the Civil Rights Act of 1964 the words in that statute to decide if that acts prohibition on discrimination based on sex Civil Rights Act, 1964, says, among other things, you can't discriminate based on sex. Does that prohibition apply to transgender and homosexual people, the LGBTQ community, all of it? So the Supreme Court's not making policy on this. They're not deciding if that's a good idea or not, or if that community deserves protection. They're not doing that. And that's the way it has been posed by a lot of the media. So don't fall for that. Congress makes the policy, and Congress did that in 1964 when they passed the Civil Rights Act in that year. Now, if they didn't make it clear, if they wanted to protect the LGBTQ community, and I guarantee you that wasn't even in their mind in 1964, but if they want to, they can fix it. They can change that any day of the week. That they get together and get the votes. And then the president signs the bill or they override a veto. So the Supreme Court isn't making a policy decision. And those who think and believe strongly, and I get it, that LG, BTQ people should be protected in the private workplace. They should ask Congress why it hasn't done its job and made that clear in a statute. Because that's what Congress is supposed to do. That's Congress's job. These people should not just hope that the Supreme Court, this term, does Congress's job for them. Okay, moving on. If you want more than that, go check out episode 31. So Nixon versus the United States. Who are these people? As we mentioned, Nixon is not Richard Nixon. That was an entirely different situation. This is Walter L. Nixon Jr. He was the chief judge, federal judge, of the U.S. District Court for the South Southern District of Mississippi. And I love finding out a little bit about these people. He was charged with bribery, so he would talk to a local district attorney about dropping state charges on one of his business partner's sons. Now, you know, a federal judge has no authority over a state DA. So I'm just curious, why would you go talk to this guy? But what I found out was Nixon was eventually convicted in federal court in 1986 on perjury charges and sentenced to five years in prison. Now, I'm getting most of this from Wikipedia because this type of thing they are usually right on, I'm not worried about. The perjury was from his testimony to a grand jury concerning his, Richard L. Nixon's, intervention in a state drug prosecution of a guy named Drew Fairchild. He was the son of Wiley Fairchild, a business partner of the federal judge Nixon. So the case was assigned to state court, but Wiley Fairchild... Ask Nixon, because they're probably, you know, country club buddies. They golf together, whatever. The guy's dad, probably rich dude, right? Nixon's connected. He's probably pretty well off himself. Says, hey, man, is there anything you can do? Talk to this state DA about this? Nixon did it. And the prosecutor, a longtime friend, dropped the case. So all three of these guys probably belong to the same country club, right? Or something like that. You want to talk about connections and power and abuse. No worse example of the abuse of privilege than this type of thing. Nixon, somehow this came to the attention of the FBI. Nixon was interviewed about this, and the United States Department of Justice were looking into this. Judge Nixon said, no, I don't know anything about it. I don't know what you're talking about. Subsequently, the federal grand jury came together, and again, he denied his involvement under oath, and he was convicted of making false statements to that grand jury. And in 1989, The U.S. House of Representatives impeached him for that perjury that he was in jail for. And after the U.S. House of Representatives impeached him, it went to the Senate and the Senate convicted him and removed him from his federal judgeship, fired him, kicked him out. That's the only way you can do it to a federal judge is by impeachment and then subsequent conviction by the Senate. So he was removed from office and he wasn't happy about that. He didn't think that was fair while he's sitting in jail. He thinks he should still be a U.S. federal district court judge. I kid you not. Now this case, the the U.S. Supreme Court, it was a unanimous decision, nine, nothing. William Rehnquist, the chief justice at the time wrote the opinion and I like to run down kind of like the program, Information on the justices when we get to these opinions. Rehnquist was nominated to the court as an associate justice in 1972 by Richard Nixon. A lot of Nixons in here. But then Ronald Reagan appointed Rehnquist to chief justice in 1986. He was joined by Colorado's own Byron White, who was nominated to the Supreme Court by JFK in 1962. White also wrote a separate concurrence. And he was joined by Blackman in that, but they all they're all nine of them are on the majority opinion. There's no dissent. Harry Blackman was appointed by Nixon, again, the President Nixon in 1970. John Paul Stevens was nominated to the bench, the US Supreme Court bench in 1975 by Gerald Ford. Stevens also wrote a concurrence. Sandra Day O'Connor, appointed by Reagan in 1981. And I mentioned Goldwater once, one more quick story about Barry Goldwater, obviously Goldwater's from Arizona. Sandra Day O'Connor, also from Arizona. The moral majority was a big thing back here in in the 80s, right? or Early 80s. And Jerry Falwell didn't really like Sandra Day O'Connor. He didn't think she was religious enough. And Falwell, this is the original Falwell Sr., said that it was the duty of every good Republican to oppose Sandra Day O'Connor's appointment. Well, Barry Goldwater was friends with her, and he liked her. And he said in response to Falwell, I think it's every good Republican's duty to kick Falwell in the ass. There you have it, true story. Also in the majority, Antonin Scalia, nominated by Reagan in 86, and Anthony Kennedy, nominated by Reagan in 88, David Souter who was appointed to the Supreme Court by George H.W. Bush in 90. And you want to talk about some of the most disappointing things H.W. Bush did, nominating David Souter was one of them. He also wrote a concurrence, but he's on the majority. Now, this is what I didn't even think about until I was going over the different justices here. Clarence Thomas, also on the bench. He was the youngest or the the, the least senior justice on the bench at the time. He was appointed by H.W. in 91. Okay, so H.W. got that one right. So he did Souter in 90, and H.W. then nominated Thomas in 91. So he had two justices in consecutive years, Thomas is still there, right? Souter resigned in 09 and he's still alive today, which I didn't even think about it. I figured he has been off the Supreme Court for so long, I assumed he had died sometime. He's still around, he's doing okay, but he just didn't wanna be in the court anymore. So he retired 10 years ago. And Souter, when he retired, Obama replaced him with Sonia Sotomayor. So think how different the court would be if HW had made a good appointment who was still on the court sitting in Sotomayor's seat next to clarence thomas but he did not he nominated Souter. Souter was a deciding vote in the kilo decision which we also talked about in episode 20 so go check that out so anyway i learned that david Souter still around retired 10 years ago clarence thomas still on the bench hw's other appointment so on this particular supreme court by the party of the president who nominated them eight were republicans and one was a democrat for whatever that's worth. The Democrat was Byron White. So all of this gnashing of teeth you see now about some of the progressives going, oh, my goodness, we can't have another Republican-nominated justice on the bench. This is not an anomaly. And we talked about a case recently also where by the time FDR was done with being president, he had eight of the nine justices on the Supreme Court. I don't think the progressives were worried about that. Again, they have selective outrage. All right, the facts in this particular case. person arguing this case before the Supreme Court was H.W.'s Solicitor General, Ken Starr. You might remember that name. Because subsequently, years later, Ken Starr was the independent counsel investigating Bill Clinton. Small world, right? It is an oligarchy. Ken Starr now, Ken Starr, is now in 2019, he's the chancellor of Baylor University, just so you know. And Walter Nixon, the federal judge, was appointed to the federal bench in 1968, And remember, he was convicted about 24 years after that. He was nominated by LBJ, just so you know. And he was corrupt. All right. Now, what did the U.S. Supreme Court say about this case? And why was Walter L. Nixon complaining about this? Rehnquist writes, Petitioner Walter L. Nixon Jr. asks this court, the U.S. Supreme Court, to decide whether Senate Rule 11, which allows a committee of senators to hear evidence against an individual who has been impeached, And to report that evidence to the full Senate, whether or not that process violates the impeachment trial clause of the Constitution. That's Article 1, Section 3, Clause 6. Rehnquist goes on. That clause provides that the, quote, Senate shall have sole power to try all impeachments. End of that quote. But before we, the U.S. Supreme Court, reach the merits of such a claim, we must decide whether it is justiciable. That is, whether it is a claim that may be resolved by the courts. We conclude it is not. All right, so that's part of the opinion. So let's look at the trial clause that was mentioned there. It says, from the Constitution, the Senate shall have the sole power to try all impeachments. When sitting for that purpose, they shall be on oath or affirmation. All the senators have to be sworn in. When the President of the United States is tried, which is not the case here, but maybe, no telling what's going to happen here in the next year with Trump. When the President is tried after he's been impeached, The chief justice shall preside. The Constitution goes on. No person shall be convicted without the concurrence of two-thirds of the members present. And that's in the Senate. So there's your supermajority. And let's let's look at the next clause, Clause 7. Judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than to removal from office and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. All right, so what that means is the Senate if they convict on the impeachment, can kick him out of office, if, whether you're a federal judge or president or anything else subject to impeachment, the punishment shall not extend further than to removal from office. So that, to me, means it could be something less than removal from office. They could convict you on the impeachment and go, we're not going to remove you from office. I didn't know that was a possibility, but it apparently is. Not, I mean, it's never happened, but it apparently is there. The Constitution goes on. But the party convicted shall nevertheless be liable and subject to indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment according to law. So the impeachment and the conviction on the impeachment and the criminal conviction are entirely separate things. That's what the Constitution is saying here. The Senate can kick you out of office and say you can never hold another office in the federal government again, but that's it. They can't put you in jail. They can't fine you, but a criminal court can. And they're saying that just because you've been impeached and kicked out of office doesn't mean you still can't be tried. So it's right there. You can still be tried for whatever it is you did. If it's criminal, you can be tried and punished for it according to law. So this Judge Nixon was found guilty of lying to a ground jury, not taking the bribe. And in that regard, the U.S. Supreme Court opinion goes on talking about what, what happened. On May 10th, 1989, the House of Representatives adopted three articles of impeachment for high crimes and misdemeanors. The first two articles charged Judge Nixon with giving false testimony before the grand jury. That's what he was convicted of. And the third article charged him with bringing disrepute to the federal judiciary. Okay, whatever that means. After the House presented the articles to the Senate, so they impeach him, now they're saying, here, Senate, you guys try him on these charges. The Senate voted to invoke its own impeachment rule, 11, under which the presiding officer appoints a committee of senators to receive evidence and take testimony. So they let a committee do the trial, basically. They let a committee do the actual Trying of the impeachment charges. They tried Judge Nixon. This Senate committee held four days of hearings during which 10 witnesses, including Judge Nixon himself, testified. Pursuant to the Senate Rule 11, the committee presented the full Senate, all 100 of them, with the complete transcript of the proceeding and a report stating the uncontested facts and summarizing the evidence on the contested facts. Judge Nixon and the House impeachment managers also submitted extensive final briefs to the full Senate. So all 100 of them got to hear from Nixon and the impeachment managers. They delivered arguments on the Senate floor during three hours set aside or oral argument in front of that body. Judge Nixon himself gave a personal appeal and several Senators posed questions directly to both parties. All right that's from the Supreme Court opinion. What did Nixon say? I haven't read the transcript. I've read this the case like I always tell you I do and I do. but the transcript of that Senate trial on his impeachment I've not read, but but I have linked to it if you ever want to go check it out. it's in the show notes. But what could he say? Yes Senators, I'm in prison. Yes Senators, I was convicted of federal crimes of lying. But come on, is that any reason to remove me from my office as a judge? I can be a judge from prison. I mean, what did he say? I I have no idea. The Supreme Court goes on describing the process. The Senate voted by more than the constitutionally required two-thirds majority to convict Nixon on the first two articles of lying to the grand jury, the things he was convicted of, but not the third one. I find that interesting. The presiding officer then entered judgment removing Judge Nixon from his office as United States District Judge. He was impeached by the House, convicted, tried, and convicted by the Senate. Although the Senate had a committee take some of the actual evidence and make a recommendation, everything that that committee did was before the entire Senate, which had the access to read it. I don't know how many actually did, but all the senators had access of reading it. And they heard arguments. The entire Senate heard arguments based on the evidence that was taken in the committee. So this is Nixon's argument that he made after he was kicked out, convicted by the Senate. The Supreme Court says, explaining this argument. Nixon thereafter commenced the present lawsuit, arguing that Senate Rule 11 violates the constitutional grant of authority to the Senate to try, and that's in quotes, that's the magic word, the authority of the Senate to try all impeachment because it prohibits the whole Senate from taking part in the evidentiary hearings, right? Because they had a committee do that. Nixon sought a declaratory judgment that his impeachment conviction was void and that his judicial salary and privileges should be reinstated. So he filed this lawsuit trying to get his salary back while he's sitting in federal prison. Both the district court and the court of appeals ruled against him finding the issue was non-justiciable. And that's what the Supreme Court said they had to do first. The Supreme Court agreed with the lower courts. So what is non-justiciable? The Supreme Court says it involves a political question. They go on, Supreme Court. The language and structure of this clause are revealing the impeachment and conviction clause process in the Constitution. The first sentence of this clause is a grant of authority to the Senate. And the word "sole" indicates that this authority is reposed in the Senate and nowhere else. So the Supreme Court concludes the Supreme Court has no authority to review what the Senate does. Sole authority to the Senate means no one else has any authority on the topic, not even the U.S. Supreme Court. So conviction on the impeachment by the Senate is completely a political issue entirely up to the Senate. That's therefore non-justiciable. That's the word. Now, Justice White in his concurrence Agreed that Nixon's case was non-justiciable, but he wanted to leave open the possibility that the Senate could do something so extreme that it would not properly be called trying the impeachment, like flipping a coin. Most of the court wasn't worried about that remote possibility, but White just wanted to leave that out there. Back to the majority opinion, petitioner, the Judge Nixon, argues that the word try— in the first sentence, imposes by implication an additional requirement on the Senate and that the proceedings must be in the nature of a judicial trial. From there, petitioner, Judge Nixon, goes on to argue that this limitation precludes, prohibits the Senate from delegating to a select committee the task of hearing the testimony of witnesses as was done to him pursuant to Senate Rule 11. So then the Supreme Court gets heavy into the weeds into 1787 definitions of the word "try." It's a great example of textualism. What did the word mean in 1787 when these people were debating the Constitution and decided on these words? The Supreme Court says, Based on the variety of definitions that they discussed, we cannot say that the framers used the word "try" as an implied limitation of, on the method by which the Senate might proceed in trying impeachments. The court goes on to say, there's three constitutional requirements. That's it. Beyond that, the Senate has sole authority, complete and utter authority. And those three things are that the members of the Senate must be under oath, a two-thirds vote is required to convict, and the chief justice presides when the president is tried. So that third one doesn't apply to this case. The court says, these limitations are quite precise, and their nature suggests that the framers did not intend to oppose additional limitations on the form of the Senate proceedings by the use of the word try in the first sentence. So again, Senate has sole authority. Sole, that's the word in the Constitution. They have complete authority. This is entirely a political process, and that will be relevant if Trump is impeached and tried. The word sole is used to describe the Senate's, authority in the trial, but it's also used in describing the House's authority in impeachment. The House has sole authority to impeach, to make the charge. So that is also an entirely political process. And it only takes a simple majority in the House. So there's no appealing to any federal court or the Supreme Court directly to them. There's no appealing if someone is impeached that, hey, that wasn't fair or there wasn't sufficient evidence to impeach me or to convict me. All right, I didn't get due process. None of that matters. This is not a criminal case. It is not a criminal proceeding. None of this is. The Constitution makes that explicit like we talked about. This is entirely a political process. The only requirement for being impeached is a majority of the people in the House votes to impeach you. The only requirement to be removed from office on that impeachment is the Senate tries you on that. And whatever they do, there is no appeal. The Supreme Court points out, quote, the sentence in the Constitution provides that, quote, the Senate shall have the sole power to try all impeachments. We, the Supreme Court, think that the word soul is of considerable significance. Uh, yes, it is. Indeed, the court goes on, the word soul appears only one other time in the Constitution with respect to the House of Representatives' sole power of impeachment. So again, so whatever the Supreme Court says here about the Senate's authority to try an official would apply to the House's authority to impeach. Would it not? It must. It's the same word in both places, describing the authority of the House, describing the authority of the Senate. The court goes on. The common sense meaning of the word soul, S-O-L-E, is that the Senate alone shall have authority to determine whether an individual should be acquitted or convicted of the charges in the impeachment. The dictionary definition bears this out. Soul is defined as having no companion, solitary, being the only one, and functioning independently and without assistance or interference. If the courts may review the actions of the Senate in order to determine whether that body tried an impeached official, it is difficult, the court says, to see how the Senate would be functioning independently and without assistance or interference. Can't get much clearer than that. I think they're absolutely right. But if someone is impeached and removed from office... I guarantee you some lawyer somewhere will gladly argue that the plain meaning of the Constitution and this case doesn't actually mean what it means. And I want to say something about Nixon, Judge Nixon's next argument. He argues that the word soul was merely a cosmetic edit added by the Constitutional Convention's Style Committee. Now, I've seen this argument a few times, and I believe it should be put to bed by now. The style committee made changes after the, the bulk of the Constitution had been adopted. They go, all right, we're good on all this. And then they say, okay, style committee, put this all together into one document, all those different things we talked about. And if there's any buts where there should be an and or whatever, fix all that. So the style committee made changes that were then adopted and ratified by the entire Constitutional Convention. Therefore, whatever changes the style committee's made— were adopted and ratified by the entire Constitutional Convention. They're part of the document, the end. It's not complicated. But Nixon's lawyers tried to make it complicated, and it's the appellate version of the Chewbacca defense. And if you're not familiar with South Park, look that up. That's where the Chewbacca defense term comes from. The Supreme Court. Goes on, we must presume that the committee did its job, the style of committee. This presumption is buttressed by the fact that the Constitutional Convention voted on and accepted the Committee of Style's linguistic version. Exactly. The court points out the absurdity of this argument. Carrying Nixon's argument to its logical conclusion would constrain us to say that the second-to-last draft of the Constitution would govern in every instance where the Committee of Style added an arguably substantive word. Such a result is at odds with the fact that the convention passed the committee's version and with the well-established rule that the plain language of the enacted text is the best indicator of intent. Exactly. Not the second-to-last version, but the final version. One other thing to know about the Constitution and what it does with the impeachment process and the conviction process, or the trial process, they can convict or acquit. The Constitution limits the president's power to pardon. It says... The president shall have power to grant reprieves and pardons for offenses against the United States, except in cases of impeachment, period. So Judge Nixon had one more argument that fails. Petitioner argues that even if significance be attributed to the word sole in the first sentence of the clause, the Senate has sole authority, the authority granted is to the Senate. And this means that the Senate, not the courts, not a lay jury, not a Senate committee, which happened to him, shall try impeachments. The court had already described the three things that the Constitution requires, and therefore delegation to a committee is okay, having all, in, in this case, 100 senators, but the Constitution doesn't require that, so it's okay. Finally, Justice Rehnquist for the unanimous court says, The parties do not offer evidence of a single word in the history of of the Constitutional Convention or in contemporary commentary that even alludes to the possibility of judicial review in the context of the impeachment powers. That's pretty important. The court mentions other places in the Constitution where judicial review is mentioned, and it isn't here. The court then spent several pages going over the history of the debates over impeachment and that process of the trial during the Constitutional Convention, and many ideas were discussed. Whether it should be in the judiciary, whether it shouldn't be in the judiciary, whether the states should be allowed to have a representative on the body that was going to try impeachment. All of this type of thing was discussed, and none of it was adopted, but they discussed it. And the Supreme Court, in this case that we're talking about, Nixon versus the U.S., made an interesting point. Quote, in our constitutional system, impeachment was designed to be the only check on the judicial branch by the legislature. Get that. Now, the Senate does approve of judicial nominations to the federal bench, but once they are seated, impeachment is the only check on the judicial branch by the legislature. So, one of the times they quote Hamilton, Hamilton. Talks about how hard it's going to be for the impeachment and removal of someone because that's the way it's designed. Then the court goes on to note that judicial involvement, if the judges, if the federal courts and the U.S. Supreme Court are going to rule on the validity of the legislative process of impeachment and trial, judicial involvement in that process, even if only for purposes of judicial review, according to the US Supreme Court is counterintuitive because it would eviscerate the important constitutional check placed on the judiciary by the framers. Because if the check on the judiciary that the legislature has is to impeach a judge, having the, the judiciary able to overrule it really puts a damper on that check. Nixon also argued that no judicial review would allow the legislative branch to control the judicial branch. Basically, the legislative branch could say, hey, you guys are going to do this, or we're going to impeach every last one of you. Again, that's never, that's, it's going to be too hard to happen. That, as a practical matter, wouldn't happen. Could you write a science fiction book? Would that happen? Sure, it's not going to happen. But the Supreme Court says the founders made impeachment really hard so that that kind of thing couldn't happen. First, you've got the accusers in the House are totally separate from the people that are going to be doing the triers of the impeachment in the Senate. Plus, the two-thirds requirement in the Senate makes it hard to do so, which is the idea. The court got into one more thing that makes judicial review of this process, a bad idea. And this would have application to any potential Trump impeachment and removal. But again, that two thirds requirement in the Senate makes that almost impossible. The Supreme Court says We agree with the Court of Appeals that opening the door of judicial review to the procedures used by the Senate in trying impeachments would expose the political life of the country to months or perhaps years of chaos. The legitimacy of any successor, like if the president is impeached, who replaces him? The legitimacy of that successor, and hence his effectiveness, would be impaired severely. Not merely while the judicial process was running its course, but during any retrial that a different constituted Senate might conduct if its first judgment of the conviction were invalidated. Equally uncertain is the question of of what relief a court may give other than simply setting aside the judgment of conviction. Could it order the reinstatement of a convicted federal judge or order Congress to create an additional judgeship if that seat had been filled in the interim? So some practical political problems with a delay that judicial review would necessitate of an impeachment and a conviction. So this process that they just described or this scenario, would certainly cause a problem. And think about that scenario as unlikely as it might be. Say Trump is impeached, which could happen, then somehow the Senate convicts him, which, you know, just play along with me for the sake of argument. If the Senate convicts him and removes him from office and says he can't hold any future offices, but his name is still on the ballots because it says this happens in like October of 2020, and he wins the Electoral College. But he's been impeached already. If he can appeal, that adds a layer of doubt to this process and perhaps creates a crisis if we have two candidates both declaring that they are the president. One, because that guy was impeached, He is barred from ever holding another political office. And since he isn't the president, I am. But the guy who's impeached is saying, ah, no, 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 I've still got a hearing before the U.S. Supreme Court. And until then, hold on. It may be me. So what do you do during that time? That would be a problem. It's similar to the situation we discussed about the Electoral College, the problem that's hanging out there. We discussed it in episodes 48, 49, and 50 about whether or not presidential electors from a state— have to vote the way their state went in the statewide election, or if they have discretion as the founders intended, and we discussed that in those other episodes. So the Supreme Court has been asked to clear up that issue, but we don't know if they're going to decide that or not. Hopefully they will, because you'd have a similar question with two people, probably even a worse situation with two people having valid arguments that they won the Electoral College. One guy wins because everybody is supposed to vote according to the way their states went, and another guy winning if they are allowed to vote for whoever they want. So that needs to be resolved, really does, before the November 2020 election. The final word of the Supreme Court in this case, Nixon versus the United States, they say, we conclude after exercising that delicate responsibility that the word try in the impeachment clause does not provide an identifiable textual limit on the authority which is committed to the Senate. In other words, the Senate can try and remove anyone they want from office and the courts have zero authority to hear an appeal because the Senate has all of the authority sole authority. Keep that stuff in mind as this modern process takes place with the Democratic-led House discussing impeaching Trump, because all of that is relevant. I'm DK Williams, and this has been The Law, episode 54, Nixon versus the United States. We're brought to you in collaboration with Speakeasy Ideas. Let me know what you think. Remember, hit me up on Twitter at thelawdkw and facebook.com slash thelawwithdkwilliams. That's the Facebook page for the podcast. Rate it, like it, et cetera, et cetera. Share, please. I'm available for speaking engagements, consulting, and teaching. Contact Bethany at Speak easy Ideas for Details. And until next week, freedom is dangerous, my friends. Live dangerous easy.